This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1, the last uh, episode of the week. And we have reconvened the Times Radio Focus Group with James Johnson and Kex CNC. That is coming up. We head to the former Red Wall seat of Scunthorpe to speak to some uh, swing voters there. They backed the Tories last time. Do they still back Boris Johnson? What do they make of Keir Starmer? That is coming up next. But because it's Thursday, our columnist panel must be Webb Cram. That's Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Let's talk about this uh, interview that Rishi Sunak has done in the uh, in the Spectator this week, um, as well as revealing his love of pancakes and champagne. Don't we all? Um, he also seems to have slipped out a new deficit reduction target, saying that it should be reduced to three percent of GDP. Uh, it's currently, I think, uh, on course to hit something like nineteen percent. I think. Um, is this uh, just the first warning of it? Is a sign of things to come, Esther? Are you surprised that he's chosen to do this in the, the festive special of a fortnightly magazine? Well, it's sort of not a bad idea, I guess, for him to slip it out there because um, I think, as the coverage today has highlighted, he's always talked in terms of putting that on a sustainable footing but he hasn't ever really said what that means uh, so this is something a bit more specific to kind of hold him to um, and it does seem from what he says there that it's, it is a sign of things to come he was explicitly talking in terms of the next election and the position the Conservatives need to get themselves in before then. So it seems like he he very is he very much is focused on that. Uh, what what do you think, Robert? Is this sensible on his part just before Christmas to start laying the groundwork for for tough decisions next year? Uh, yeah, I mean he's got to do it at some stage, and I think he's also uh, the main motive is is, is political, as uh, as Esther says. It's also it's how they position themselves. It's also how he positions himself. I mean he he didn't become a conservative to preside over nineteen percent. Uh, public sector debt of 90% of GDP. He, uh, he wants to, he's a spending chancellor at the moment, but I guess he wants to uh, 
signal to his uh, uh, to Tories and the Tory uh, potential Tory voters in a leader, future leadership contest that he's actually a fiscally conservative chancellor at heart. And what do we make of um, champagne and pancakes on Christmas morning, particularly a man who doesn't drink but still seems to lay on champagne? This sounds like an ideal Christmas morning, Esther. Yeah, it does sound nice, doesn't it? I guess if you're only going to have one drink, then champagne is not not a bad shout. It's the Um, only thing I'm going to drink this Christmas. No, he doesn't drink at all, I don't think. Um, But he, you know, he still does pancakes of champagne. I'm not sure who, I assume it's his wife. Uh, I see, I see, yes. Um, Um, But, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's very bold, I think, by him because he he's got into a little bit of trouble before over having quite um, fancy tastes. But maybe I quite like the fact he's just going with that and saying, "Yep, I have a whatever it was, five hundred pound coffee cup." And oh I yeah, the Bluetooth, Bluetooth enabled coffee yeah. cup. He, he doesn't really seem to mind too much. I still don't understand what the point of that cup was. Just get on and drink your tea. Um... <laughs> seriously, though, that could be a bit, it could be a bit of a problem for him. He's got a house in California, hasn't he? I think, and he's 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 very wealthy. And his wife's from a very wealthy family. I mean, uh, when the smoke clears and all of this, he, his uh, uh, his kind of plutocratic taste might might become a little bit of an issue for him. Yeah, the, it's, it's, maybe, it's, maybe he's softening. Maybe that's maybe he's, you know he's, the pancakes are fairly proletarian, I suppose. So maybe he's you know trying to offset the champagne with the pancakes. <laughs> yeah, just sorry, use... to, sorry to sound so cynical. Maybe he just likes pancakes. I don't know. The um, uh, I think you're right though. I mean, I mean I, having said that, the, the Labour Party have always struggled to sort of land the sort of witch toff thing. They tried it against David Cameron, you know, literally yeah. campaigning in top hats, and it just didn't. It just didn't land. And actually, I, I suppose if if people like Rishi Sunak and they think he's doing the right thing the fact that he's personally has got a lot of money uh doesn't yeah you know because people made the same charge against George Osborne and you know the Osborne they that's the right wall, and it's the also, wallpaper it's what, and all that and they still want a majority it's what people aspire to isn't it I mean we they don't necessarily uh they don't hold it against uh even if they can't afford it themselves they would like to be able to uh and they don't necessarily they don't hold it against people who, who can so i uh, I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. Yes. but you're right. It hasn't had much. It hasn't had much traction in recent years. No. Do you think it might, it might do in the middle of a massive recession? Yeah, Esther. Do you think that Keir Starmer is the sort of person who's going to sort of launch that sort of attack on which? I mean, they have the Labour Party have spent certainly the latter part of this year. They've spent quite a lot of time trying to find ways to attack Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I feel that they haven't really found what fits yet. There was a kind of outrider campaign against Rishi and his money which wasn't officially from the Labour Party. And I think some Labour people were quite annoyed by that because they thought it was incredibly heavy-handed. And as you say, these personal attacks on so-called toffs or millionaires don't really seem to hit home. Um, so it'd be, it'd be a bit weird if they, if they went down that route again. Uh, I think probably what they're going to focus on instead is his response to the crisis and how that develops and whether people are going to be left to kind of sink or swim, say, this time next year when the effects will still be 
felt. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, yeah, and, and it just, yeah, it doesn't feel very Keir Starmery uh, doing that as a no. as a line of attack. Um, just, uh, let's talk about Christmas. Just while we've been talking, um, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has been in the House of Commons uh, <laughs> announcing that the House of Commons is going to rise for Christmas today and then they might be back again next week if there's a Brexit deal. Um, but in the, he's got into such a pickle, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's just called Lindsay Hoyle Mr Christmas. <laughs> 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 which is quite fun. Um, uh, but let's talk about Christmas and this, this announcement. is the return of personal responsibility. It's the old, uh, we're right back to the pubs are open, but don't go to the pubs. Yeah. Uh, you can see your family, but don't see your family, Robert. It's interesting, isn't it? I think the government are realising that they've slightly misjudged the public mood and that we're not all as sentimental about Christmas as perhaps they thought we were. Uh, and people have weighed it up and uh, thinking, well, five days of comparative freedom versus a, a whole load more deaths and a lockdown January, uh, no thanks, we'll stay at home. I mean, 75% of people are saying they're not going to travel. Uh, yeah, it's the return of personal responsibility. And and, and it seems that the British people uh, have got a, a sense of, of, of personal responsibility, which perhaps the government hadn't given them credit for. Yeah, and what about what about you, Esther? What did you make of? Because the the I was really struck today. Is at the front of the mirror they called Boris Johnson a coward mm. for sticking by the rules that when they announced when he announced that he was going to relax things at Christmas, they said, "Oh, good, Christmas is you'll be able to see your family at Christmas." Um, it, it's sort of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Yeah, I I guess I guess I can see why they wouldn't want to change the actual rules completely at this late stage and the, the sort of guiding philosophy behind it was they didn't want to criminalize people who were opting to see their family um but it it does it does feel as if they possibly hit the wrong note on this and they uh, and it was actually a few weeks ago that i noticed during one of the covid rules debates that quite a few of the Conservative MPs were telling the government that their constituents couldn't understand the justification for relaxing the rules. And that's the kind of alarm bell ringing that um, should reach the government and make them think, well, was this really the right priority? And do people really care about it as as much as we think yeah there just seems to be that. it's interesting that the whole follow the science thing has gone out the window hasn't it because every scientist who has spoken about this is obviously absolutely horrified by the uh, by the relaxation uh, and yet the, the, the government's ignoring him but is it, I think what's noticeable is that you, is it now uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance they do caveat mm-hmm. things they, on a purely scientific basis You'd have no mixing, you know. You'd essentially shut down the economy and do nothing. But that is not realistic in the in the grand scheme of things. And if people are going to uh, try to see some people over Christmas, setting some parameters for that uh, possibly works. And and people saying, "Oh, things have changed," you know, and that's why they should be changed. Nothing's changed. We knew in November when they announced this that the best way of catching COVID is to sit in a room in close quarters with people for a long time. Um, I'm not quite sure. The idea, the sun. I quite like the front page of the Sun today, where they've the headline: "Cold Turkey." Uh, because um, everyone's suggesting you can have Christmas dinner with your nan, but you'll have to do it in the garden. Um, yeah. Oh, God. She won't catch yeah, COVID, we're but she might get pneumonia of... instead. <laughs> <laughs> what are you planning, Esther? How are you planning to get around this? Are you having turkey in the back garden? 
<laughs> practically no we had a bit of a crisis talk last night with my family and um i i won't travel because i'm really lucky my parents live about half an hour walk away and um and, and just to see it more as a lunch where you go around for a few hours yeah. rather than spending all day vegging in front of the tv <laughs> <laughs> and also to probably have the doors and windows open and wrap up warm so, so, so yeah. at least now they say when they say you'll treat this place like a hotel or a restaurant you can say yes that's exactly what i'm doing <laughs> exactly, <laughs> come in give me my dinner and i'm off do. yeah exactly yeah. what about you robert what are you planning uh, well we're going back up north uh we're making a bubble with my brother-in-law's family uh for a couple of days um yeah 24 25th 26th and we will go around to see my my parents are not around anymore, but we'll, my wife's are, and we will go around to see them. And we'll yeah, we will see them in the in the garden, basically, uh, at some distance with a mask on. Uh, yeah. And so we, well, I suppose we've yeah, well, I mean, we we yeah, that's our assessment. You know, we we're uh, we're sticking within the rules. Uh, in fact, well, we're not going up to the. We're, we, I mean, we could, as I understand it, we could go and and sit in there front room for five days watching the Bond film uh but <laughs> which seems ridiculous I mean we don't want to do that they they don't want us to do that but we're but we you know we'll see them from uh from a distance in the in the, in the open air in I the freezing cold I suppose that's, that's the slight thing isn't it that the 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 idea of these five days and what you can and can't do it all feels a bit sort of March when we did really did you know we didn't know what we were doing we needed everything spat out for us we all know now what we can and can't be doing. And, you know, every, every day people take, you know, um, uh, risks based on what we know and, and, and what you can do and what you actually yeah. do are two different things. Yeah, self-assessment. And people are doing that. And I think people, I mean, obviously the media tends to focus on, on, the, on kind of inveterate rule breakers, but they don't really, I don't come across them. I mean, there's a tiny minority. I mean, most people are perfectly sensible. They know what's, uh, what they can uh, what's you know reasonable and they and they they're doing it i i think what's difficult is it's been framed from the beginning as a relaxation and at the press conference yesterday chris whitty tried to push against and say we're not saying relax we're not saying don't take any of the precautions we know we need to be taking but it was sort of a bit too late and that is the way it's kind of been presented when, in fact, it, perhaps there was a different way of saying it, it will be possible to meet your bubble in this way. Yeah. But, but the relaxation and, word was problematic, yeah. I think. And now they're all terrified of being seen to do a U-turn. Yeah, it's just, what, a, what a muddle, what a muddle. Um, mm. Just before I let you go, I want to talk to you about Christmas cards. Uh, we've now got Boris Johnson's Christmas card. It's got a picture of his dog on the front. Uh, with um, tinsel around its neck. I don't know how they've managed to do that because we've tried putting a Christmas hat on our dog several times without success. It has to be I, got, I got a Christmas jumper on the cat the other night. Did you? Yeah. Wow. That, I mean, that's, how, that, that's how bored we are. I was going to say, that's how you just fill the day at home now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but it is at least a bit more festive, um, the dog with tinsel around its neck, than um, Keir Starmer's clapping, which, I mean... If you've been really cynical, it looks like he's just clapping himself. Um, yeah, I, I thought maybe... Was, is it um, clap for carers, you mean? It, it is him doing yeah. the clap for carers, but it's not very festive. Yeah, no. that was so 
boring. <laughs> I thought maybe it was about raising awareness of his face. <laughs> um, uh, are you sending Christmas cards this year? I think they are allowed if they're COVID compliant. Uh, you asking me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've sent, in fact, we've sent them. We've gone really early this year. Uh, and, I mean, I, every year I have this argument with my wife saying that, you know, they, that they've been overtaken by technology and every year she says, no, we're going to do them. Uh, and we did. Uh, <laughs> just, just very, no, I mean, no, no, nothing fancy, just charity ones. Yeah. Uh, no, no pictures of the, although actually now that, so having seen the cat in his jumper, I regret that we didn't do that as a card. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Esther? Um, I have to say I haven't been organised enough to send any, but I have noticed that people my age, so I think we're called the elder millennials. Sorry, they have been sending them, so I think to do, it's a it? coronavirus yeah. thing, yeah. and people are sending more cards, and it's been quite nice because, as Robert mentioned, we're all completely bored. <laughs> so, it's something it's nice to do exciting. to send them, it's something nice to do to open them as well. That's Esther Weber and Robert Crampton there. Up next, we've got our focus group and we head to Scunthorpe to find out what voters there make of the government and the opposition. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Sholley. Now, every month uh, hit on my Times radio show, we convene our very own focus group. We uh, use James Johnson. He used to do exactly this job for Theresa May in Downing Street, holding focus groups to find out what voters are saying about the state of politics right now. We do it every month in association with Ket CNC. And this is what happened when we headed to Scunthorpe. It's one of these seats that the Conservatives gained for the first time uh, in 2019. Um, it's also one uh, where it was a particularly huge swing. It was a 13% swing. Um, and in a recent poll we did of the, of the Red Wall, um, it was one that the Conservatives actually just hung on to um, on the uniform swing of where the parties are now. So it's a very interesting seat that's sort of on the cusp of one of those ones that potentially could well be in trouble for the Conservatives next time round. OK, well, let's just um, before we dive in, just explain the value of focus groups, because I can guarantee within the next five minutes, someone will text in or email in and say, oh, well, this doesn't fit with what I think. Oh, well, this doesn't fit with the polls. So what is the value of uh, of a focus group over broader opinion polling? 
So the first thing is that focus groups are not meant to be a substitute for a poll. They're not meant to be a prediction. You know, we're only talking to seven or eight people. That's not never going to be a representative sample because there's not enough people in the focus group. But what they do do is they give you a flavor of what people are saying and thinking underneath the numbers, um, how they're talking about the main leaders, what kind of events and things and moments throughout the year and throughout their lives are affecting their view of the main parties and politicians. And here today we've got these voters who they voted Labour before and they voted Conservative for the first time last year. Um, and they're now basically, we're now basically revisiting them one year on. It gives us a sense of where people's minds are at rather than a definitive view of what they'll do in the future. What's been really interesting sitting, sitting in on these as, in, uh, as you do them is uh, the way that you sort of warm them up and get, let them get everything off their chest first. Um, and uh, so this week when we did the, the Scunthorpe one, the first thing you just asked them was just a general, get it off your chest, how's the government doing? I think the government is completely out of touch with the people. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't think they live in the real world. Um, you know, so many people have lost their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. the, the effect on the, on mental health of this country is astonishing. Yet the government just live in their little bubble, making the rules, mm -hmm. telling us what we can and what we cannot do. Uh, I think they're struggling quite a lot. But, um, I've said before that obviously dealing with an unknown quantity with COVID, I, I sort of do sympathise a little bit with government because we're only human at the end of the day and it's something that's never been dealt with on, on this level before. I agree. I agree. I, agree. I, agree. I think that the government have got the worst job in the world at the minute because no matter what they do, they will do it wrong for somebody. But say no matter what what they decide to do, it's always going to go against somebody. And and like Nick says, they're fighting an unknown quantity. They don't know what's going to happen. They can only do the best with the information that they've got. So they keep changing everything because the information keeps changing. I wouldn't want to be in their position. The government, with anything, not just COVID, with anything, they, they can only please half the people half the time because the other half are going to have a totally different opinion to whatever the the situation or the topic or whatever it is they're talking about. They're only going to please half of us half the time. James, every time we've done one of these, it's always quite striking how uh, willing to give the benefit of the doubt voters are uh, to the Prime Minister, accepting that coronavirus this year has been a, a madly difficult year. Nobody would want to be in that position. Nobody would really want to, to be taking the decisions he has. And so, you know, even if they think it's all not gone very well, they're willing to say, well, you know, no one could have come out of this well. Yeah, and that really is the, one of the key themes of this year uh, in the focus groups and in the research um, throughout is this benefit of the doubt, this sort of sense of, well, you know, other governments um, are, are in no better position. It's quite interesting, actually. Nobody really talks about you know governments in Asia, for example, that have got a hold on coronavirus. People talk about it as being a, a silent killer that can't be stopped, can't be suppressed. And they really do. Uh, they criticise Boris Johnson. They criticise the government. In no way are these guys, uh, you know, sort of allied closely to the Conservative Party, as I'm sure we'll find out throughout the focus group but they are willing to give the benefit of the doubt and that's not something really that I had I saw in government under Theresa May it's something that I expect is partly a product of such a decisive election victory voters although they're going to be critical uh, you know they still did cast that vote only a year ago and are probably still viewing uh, the Conservatives through a slightly positive light because of that. And I suppose there's a difference, there's a sort of material difference in that Brexit felt like a very political thing that politicians should should be able to sort out. 
uh, in a way that coronavirus is a is a crisis um, is is a health thing that not no one has yet found a way to properly uh, sort out. So maybe that's part of the difference. Right, let's drill in a bit more. Then let's um, take a listen to what they had to say when you asked uh, what they made of Boris Johnson and how he's doing. Oh, I like I Boris, um, but yeah. I just think he's in a really awkward situation, and and he's just the face of the government anyway. He doesn't make the decisions, so it's I find it really hard to have an opinion on him generally on the whole thing because it's bigger than just him. Um, I liked Boris. I voted for him because of Brexit. Um, but like, like the other, like the other lady said, he, he's just, it's just the face of what the other MPs and parliament are saying and advising him. I'm confused with it all. Oh, I could really say is I, I don't mind Boris at all. And I, I, I honestly believe he's doing the absolute best that he can in a terrible situation. Oh, up until recently, I didn't mind him. Um, but like I said, I read, I read something recently that said that he's had made some homophobic comments and he's quite bigoted and uh, um, something about tapping a woman on the bum. That's how you deal with them. So I don't like that kind of attitude. But... Uh, yeah, I think he's uh, doing his best with uh, what's everything around, like with the COVID. But I just think he he's um, getting everything mixed up. He's, uh, he doesn't know what to do. Okay. And I have, and I think also he's Islamophobic. I'm I'm Muslim myself, I, and I find him to be a racist. Um, I think Boris Johnson is a puppet. I think he's <laughs> being pulled in every direction by everybody else um i don't think he's the right man for this country i don't think he's a strong enough leader you know even before covid uh, you know nothing changed it's really interesting um uh, it's one of those things sometimes james listening to the focus group and you suddenly think they've put them put their finger on quite a sort of sophisticated uh, bit of political analysis there that, that Lots of people paid far more money to do it for a living. Uh, never quite managed. Uh, a couple of things to unpick there. Uh, this, this idea of him being a puppet uh, and not in charge of events. I mean, that's a very different view to, uh, you know, 12 months ago when he was his strong leader and he was going to get Brexit done and deliver things for Britain. And now he's not even the master of his own destiny. Absolutely. And I think that's really the key difference. If I take myself back 12 months ago to you know the focus groups in the run-up and after the general election, it was really that strength, decisiveness. Um, the idea that Boris was going to cast everyone aside and get things done because you know he was his own man. And that is one of the key things that has changed in Boris Johnson's brand over the last year. They talk about him, as, as the lady says, there as a puppet. They talk about these advisors and MPs putting the, strings behi- uh, put, putting the strings behind the scenes. Quite a good reminder that although, you know, all of those uh, um, press uh, stories about uh, Dom and Lee and Carrie, um, all of the sort of advisors behind the scenes, those voters probably couldn't name those people. But the impression that all of those stories have had, as well as his general approach to the pandemic, has created this sense that he's out on his own. There's also other events. One one gentleman said you know, he didn't sack the guy who went to Barnard Castle, referring to Dominic Cummings' trip earlier in the year and the fallout from that. So a few things have created this sense that Boris Johnson is sort of a bit listless. He's sort of wandering around. He's sort of a bit confused. He's he's a bit lost. And really, ultimately, not a figure of hate, which you might expect if you read Twitter, but more of a figure of pity. 
And that's not a great place for a leader to be, is it? I mean, Theresa May ended up in a similar place when you were working for her. Yeah, yeah, um, she certainly did. And I always remember um, Deborah Matheson, Gordon Brown's former pollster, uh, uh, telling me, actually, while I was still at number 10 and and and, and hoping uh, Theresa May could turn things around, she said to me, you know, once a voter described Gordon Brown to her as, a, as like a tethered bear. You know, I just feel sorry for him. And uh, and that's is a similar is a similar thing here. It's difficult to come back from that. Right, let's, um, let's turn our attention to the other guy then. Let's hear what the focus group in Scunthorpe had to think about uh, Keir Starmer. I think he's got balls. And I think if he were in charge, he'd put a lot of good things in place. I, I don't really know enough about him, to be fair, to comment on him. So um, I haven't really got an opinion at the moment. I don't, you know, I've not seen enough. Uh, well, I've seen uh, the Parliament. Um, he doesn't stand um, up to Boris Johnson. I, I quite like Keir Starmer. I, I think he's a quite a smart, smart bloke. Uh, he's, he's an ex-lawyer. He does speak like a lawyer quite, quite a lot. Uh, but he always, he always talks with quite a lot of logic for me, which I, I like in people. Again, I, what the other lady said, I don't really have much of an opinion. I don't know much about him. Well, this is a recurring theme as well from the focus groups this year, James. He's still not having much of an impact. No, and it was interesting because when we did the sort of initial responses to Keir Starmer, people were quite positive. You heard a bit of it in there, strong, neat and tidy, um, you know, talking positively actually about the lawyer background. But when you dig into uh, actually what he's done or what he stands for, there's a sort of silence. And actually, I asked people to go around at one point and give grades to the different parties and, and Keir Starmer, you know, people couldn't really... Uh, uh, give one. And actually, it was interesting because when we came later in the focus group onto hesitations about the main parties, one of the things they were saying was not really sure what Keir Starmer stands for. So a positive impact. I think it's really important to stress that, you know, he's not sort of seeing the problem that perhaps Ed Miliband had when he was first leader of the opposition and certainly Jeremy Corbyn, where lots of people wrote them off quite quickly straight away, especially voters of this type in these kind of places. Um, But He's, he's still failing to sort of put that flesh on the bones for these voters. And when when people start talking about, you know, he he looks smart or he's, you know, he's neat and tidy, um, that does, uh, you know, you could say, well, that's just sort of superficial. It should be about the policies and does the manifesto. But all that does, sort of thing does matter in politics. Let's take a li- listen to um, them comparing just the appearance of Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. It's one thing about Boris I don't like. He looks a bumbling fool and, and he's the master of our country. And I always think that whatever he looks like, they will see British people like that. And I think Keir Starmer, on that basis alone, would uh, would make a real good, good masthead for the country and would be taken possibly a little bit more serious around the world. Boris just looks like he's just rolled out of bed. And people, especially in America, they do look in him to Trump. And, you know, we need someone that's looking smart, looking leadership qualities... So this is interesting, James. And while the, the, the focus group was going on, we were sort of chatting uh, on WhatsApp about it. And you made this point that, that, that there is an opportunity here for uh, Keir Starmer to sort of turn looking a bit smarter in a suit into a sort of political positive. Certainly. And that's also linked to the patriotism case. Um, you know, these voters were very patriotic. They talked about standing up for Britain. They talked about the desire to be a serious country. And their sense, actually, was that Boris Johnson 
could be potentially holding this back with this sort of bumbling um, approach and that Keir Starmer actually could embody that. Now, one thing we know about the challenge that Labour faces with these voters is, you know, that, that they feel that Labour has fallen out of uh, out of sort of um, in hoc with their values. Now, this is a huge opening for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, because by contrasting, you know, the se- representative of the serious country, Keir Starmer, with Boris Johnson, um, there is a real sort of not only a distinction with Boris Johnson, but also a way to make this patriotism case and also something that will bring his troops on board as well. It does sometimes make me wonder, uh, make me wonder, Matt, where sort of Labour's attack is, because or, or whether they're doing focus groups to the same extent uh, as we are on Times Radio. Because when you look at this, there is a huge opening there for the Labour leader. Yeah, and it, it sort of plays to his strengths as well. I mean, one of the things that came through again and again and again throughout the, what was it, 90 minutes uh, that the focus group ran, th- ran for was one of the most positive things they could say about Keir Starmer is he wasn't that other bloke, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Boris needs, yeah. in my opinion... Boris needs to step up to the plate and be a leader and not be led. And the only reason that uh, the Conservative Party gained uh, votes in Burnley, on Bolton and all these other northern places in Lancashire is because nobody wanted Jeremy Corbyn. Well, yeah, and that came up again and again and again all over the place, didn't it, James? The, the, uh, the, the, the not Corbyn factor 12 months ago was why a lot of them voted for Boris Johnson. Uh, but that, you know, Keir Starmer is very, very keen to make clear that he is not Jeremy Corbyn, Labour Party under new management. Yeah, that's a big positive for the, for these voters. They always they always talked about Brexit in relate in relation to their 2019 vote, and they also talked about Corbyn. Those two things have now gone. That coupled with a sense of frustration about the government, those clips we heard right at the start about the government being a bit of a mess and disappointment with handling of the coronavirus, plus the removal of Brexit and Corbyn, means that for some of these voters, that residual concern that they've always had about the Conservative brand do they stand up for us? Do they stand up for the working class? Or do they stand up for the richest and the most elite has started to rear its head once more. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is, you know, a demolition job for the Conservatives, that they're going to be written off in the red wall forever. But these voters are back to being proper swing voters. And for them, they've just started to worry after this year, that are the Conservatives really standing up for us after all? And the Conservatives are going to need to pull something quite positive out the bag to sort of start tilting that view back to where it was a year ago. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they talked really honestly as well about, uh, you know, their parents had always voted Labour, they'd always voted Labour, it'd always been around uh, Labour around here. Uh, and one of them in particular sort of summed up the mood of how they vote, how they felt when they voted for Boris Johnson in December. When I did vote last time for Conservative, I actually came out and I felt physically sick at the fact that I'd just put my mark next to a Conservative. I mean, that's and that's a, a thing that was sort of repeated again and again last year, wasn't it, James? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really, really key point from this focus group. And indeed, from the poll I mentioned that we also did, that you know, showed Conservatives falling behind in the red wall. These voters that voted Conservative last year, there's a bit of a narrative out there amongst some, and particularly amongst some Conservative MPs and commentators, that these guys are actually, you know, their values are shared with with the Tories now. You know, they're going to be harder for Labour to detach from the Conservatives. Actually, if a voter is still talking about how they felt sick voting Conservative, you know, my suggestion would be, you know, that their vote is not in the bag. And these guys are proper swing voters now. um, And, you know, they really are up for grabs for Labour. Well, in fact, uh, one of them, just to confirm that they really were swing voters, he used the word himself. 
if it was right now, if there were an election right now, I possibly would stay with Conservative because I, I don't think it's a, a good thing to have a change of power while we've got COVID uh, happening. I, I don't think they've handled it too badly, so I'd, I'd, I'd probably stay, stay, stay as I am now. But I, I, uh, in future, I will, I'll look at things more closely, see what's once again, what manifestos, what's on, what's on offer. Uh, but I, I am, I do actually like Keir Starmer as well. So uh, I, I'll be, uh, I'd be more swingy now than I, than I ever have been really. There we are. I'll be more swingy now. I mean, this is, this is, you know, and Boris Johnson, I think is acutely aware of this. You speak to people in number 10, they know, you know, all that stuff about um, they lent us their votes and we have to deliver. They are acutely conscious of that. This is not some, some, you know, generational shift in, in terms of these places supporting the Conservatives forevermore. Yeah, exactly. I think the problem is, is that, you know, one of the real risks back in January, when I think number 10 were also aware of this, was that it was really seen as the way to deal with this is to deliver. It's to get, um, you know, the 20,000 police, the 50,000 nurses, you know, to really show delivery in these areas. The problem for the Conservatives now is that this is turned from a deliver a potential delivery problem into a values problem. You know, increasingly, these voters feel um, that the Conservatives are sort of drifting away from them and how they stand up for them. That's partly linked to their handling of the coronavirus crisis. It's also it's always there in the background. I think you know we've had we've had it come up. I think I think it must have been Matt in every focus group at Dumb Times Radio at least one mention of Barnard Castle. Exactly the drink um, the drinking game that's... definitely involves uh, if someone <laughs> yeah. mentions Barnard Castle, you've got to drink. Exactly. And, you know, that's playing a role as well. And look, I think it's absolutely right. You know, we shouldn't get carried away. In 2024, people are probably not going to be thinking about Barnard Castle. But if the Conservatives aren't able to sort of turn around the narrative and present some really different positive things that make them feel differently about the brand, the effects of things like Barnard Castle and the coronavirus crisis on the Conservative brand, the, the impact of it, the consequences may not go away. Yeah, that feeling of one rule for them and one rule for everyone else might linger without being able to remember exactly what it was that instilled it in the first place. Well, you asked them both because they're always, you know, they're very much sort of on the fence, a bit swingy. Uh, you asked uh, both about, you know, why whether or not they would vote Labour or Tory again. Let's hear what their hesitations would be about voting Conservative next time. The long and drawn out process that it took to deal with Brexit, uh, almost to the point where. It's made me think that that you know, uh, well, they don't want they don't want it to go through. They just lie all the time. It doesn't matter. We could have this conversation about, say, the Liberal Democrats was in any of them. They all tell us something and then never deliver. They all talk out the backside. Every one of them. Um, I think my one sentence would be, um, I don't believe in them. To let me or my beliefs down or something that. Uh, in the manifestos, uh, they said, yes, they were going to do it, and they didn't do it, and it affected me personally, I would say, well, my vote goes to the other side. So they're, they're, what, what to make of um, that, James? They are, do they, it's not quite betrayed yet, but a bit let down. Is that partly the, the, uh, a symptom of the fact that it was such a big thing for them to vote Conservative last time, you know, expectations could always, you know, are always difficult to meet. Yeah, I think there's certainly an element of that. And you can certainly pick up there that, you know, there are traces of the sort of frustration with government and politicians overall, rather than something uh, unique to the Conservatives. Even the Liberal Democrats getting a mention. And, you know, in the drinking game, it's not often that, uh, that, that they get they get thrown up. 
Indeed, the impact of tuition fees, almost to the month, 10 years on, I think. Um, so, yeah, certainly uh, uh, there is there is that disappointment and there is that sort of values drift that I mentioned. Also quite interesting there are some of those uh, uh, things that, again, you know, people in the Westminster bubble might be thinking are helping the Conservatives. The sort of sabre rattling and the sort of um, taking on Europe over the last couple of weeks and, and sort of the, the, the Brexit side of things. Actually, a couple of voters in that focus group, well, no voter talking positively about it, and a couple actually saying this was actually driving them away from the Conservatives because they're so sick of the process. Brexit goes on and on and on and on and they wanted to stop. So some correctives to some red wall myths in this focus group as well. Yeah, exactly right. And there were others and we haven't got time to go through them all. They, they even raised, you know, the environment and looking after the planet and net zero and uh, lots of things that people say, oh, the red wall aren't interested in that. But they, they still, actually, they were still brought up. Uh, it's not as if everyone's rushing to um, uh, the Labour Party either. Let's hear what their hesitations for voting Labour again were. Strong enough leader. Um, Strong enough leader. Anyone else? The unknown, the unknown quantity. The unknown I agree quantity. with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, completely. So again, John, sorry? The unknown quantity of what you get. You don't know what he's about. He hasn't shown his true colours yet. Yeah, when he shows his true colours, then uh, it might be one way or the other of which way you put your trust in. So it's obviously quite smart, uh, James, that Keir Starmer hasn't yet sort of put flesh on the bones. He's sort of restarted the conversation, essentially, with voters. At what point, if you were advising Keir Starmer now, what point would he have to start fleshing out a bit of what he's all about? Well, I think you have to start quite early. I think that certainly he's had a pretty good year in not being Corbyn. Um, and certainly <laughs> voters talk about his PMQ's performances, or at least they I don't think they're religiously watching PMQ's, but they're picking up the fact that he's sort of taking on Boris Johnson uh, every week. Um, but I, I'm not suggesting that he needs to come out with a full manifesto and a lot of policies. Voters aren't really looking for that. But I think they are certainly looking to see Keir Starmer a bit more sort of on, on the front foot and a bit more prominent and making clear his sort of views on things. I think there is a risk that unknown quantity isn't just something that they're thinking might be the case, but it actually becomes how someone is defined. And you can certainly see Boris Johnson trying to make that case in his attacks in PMQs by saying, you know, will he ever make a decision? Um, will he ever sort of say he has anything? If, if the Keir Starmer and Labour aren't careful that could change from a concern into actually the way that people describe him full stop. And so I suggest, you know, I think they need to sort of go into the next year really trying to put, trying to put flesh on those bones. So we're listening to the uh, Times Radio focus group. James Johnson used to carry out focus groups and polling for Theresa May in Downing Street in association with Keck CNC. Uh, after the 11.30 news, we will um, hear what the group had to say about Christmas and coronavirus and all of that. But, uh, James, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, you asked them to give end-of-year grades to uh, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. So let's hear what they had to say. Uh, end-of-term end school grades, uh, kicking off with Boris Johnson. Your grade for Boris Johnson, the Conservatives? B plus. B minus. C. B. B. B plus. Okay. And same again, grade this year for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party? I can't grade him because I don't know enough about him. C plus. If I have to grade him a D? Uh, again, I don't know enough about him. I give him a C. I give him a C. Can't grade him at the moment. I want to see how he improves and how he fights the Conservative over the next few years. D. <laughs> D. Um, uh, I'm in a mixed bag. I mean, Boris Johnson probably taking some um, positives from the Bs and the B pluses 
Uh, and uh, yeah, Keir Starmer needs to needs to hand some homework in before people can mark it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty much where they are. I mean, I think one key thing about this focus group, despite everything I've said, you know, about the values drift and how the Conservatives are in trouble with these voters. I think one really clear thing is that the coronavirus crisis itself uh, is not going to be the thing that does the Conservatives in. You know, there is this, as we heard earlier, you know, no government will sort this out. They're unlucky to be in power. You know, as you say, some, some Bs and B pluses in there. It's how they've reacted to it. It's how they've handled it. And it's how they go into the next few years and sort of, you know, uh, uh, the values uh, offer that they give these voters that's going to be the thing that really matters. Um, James, let's take a listen to you basically asked them, what are the what are the what are the coronavirus rules? And we got they went full Matt Lucas. Let's take a listen. Then the yeah. next day, something else. And then the saying that people are breaking yeah. rules. Well, if the rules change too often and that you're in Grimsby and you're in this area and then you're in that area and you're in that that tier and this tier can't mix with that tier and that tier's allowed one bubble and that bubble's only allowed to see the that rules bubble. Are that bubble can't see that bubble. But you can have yeah. six people together at Christmas and you can have three houses. How is anyone yeah. ever expected to know like what COVID's got a conscience or something? Like COVID's got a conscience or something, said one there. Uh, James Johnson, I imagine that the government is doing its own focus groups and hearing exactly the same thing. Yeah, I expect they certainly are. And I think that was one of the reasons we sort of ended up with move to the tier system back uh, back in the autumn um, to try and sort of have at least something where you can look up what the rules actually are in each of these main tiers. But it's clearly still a, a real issue. And I expect, I mean, we did this focus group uh, on Tuesday evening. I expect that the events yesterday with Wales uh, and Scotland going slightly different ways on rules for Christmas has entrenched that even further. And this is one of the real stories of this year. It's one of those moments that really sort of changed views of Boris Johnson's brand back in May when he first did the sort of unlocking speech, which resulted in that Matt Lucas parody video. And it's something that has you know not really ever stopped since in terms of this feeling of real frustration and utter confusion about the rules. One lady found out, I mean, she admittedly didn't live there, but, you know, she found out that London was in tier three, sort of live on air during the focus group. <laughs> and others, you know, were asking people questions about what exactly the rules were. And that's something I've seen across a number of groups throughout the year. And so you asked them about, and obviously this is pre the changes uh, that they made to um, uh, the advice at Christmas, but you asked them what, what should be the rules? Should we have a Christmas relaxation? What is five <laughs> days of freedom going to do when you can see your family? Is it going to stop COVID? I don't think so. COVID doesn't have a consciousness. It can't think and stop for five days. It's ridiculous. What price are we going to pay for having five days of freedom at Christmas? Mm. What exactly. is going to happen in January um, when COVID wreaks havoc because we've all been hugging and kissing and spending time together and being outside of our bubbles? And I think absolutely people have to spend christmas with their families um but i am just dreading january i don't want to be a conspiracy theorist or anything but my personal opinion is that i think we're going to end up in full lockdown for the whole duration of january i don't even know exactly it depends how you read it to what the rules are i mean i've had this conversation with my sister she reads the rules different to how her daughter reads them and i really don't understand I couldn't definitively tell you what the bubble rules are. Is it that necessary when you could possibly say Merry Christmas to your granny and then also give her a death wish or death warrant on the same day? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, death warrant for granny is not a great uh, political slogan, um, James. Uh, and it felt like a, a woman in the middle of that group who was sort of really put her finger on it, that, that people sort of know what they should be doing. 
Yeah, and there certainly has always been that sort of strange sense, you know, we've seen in the polls, lots of support for lockdown restrictions. But we also have the sense that really comes through in the focus groups, that, you know, people also say they should do their own thing. I think what we certainly see here, though, is a real uh, mirroring with the polls on Christmas, that there is this real sort of fear that actually this is going to lead to a resurgence of the virus, it's going to lead to an increase. All of these people were pretty much, you know, certain already there was going to be another national lockdown in January. The really interesting thing about this, though, that marked out other milestones like this throughout the year for me uh, was that they talked about unprompted um, who would get the blame. And they talked about the government, that the government would eventually turn around in January and they would say it's the public's fault for breaking the rules. And that's the first time I've seen that dynamic at work. And that's it really did feel like perhaps the government is actually really running towards quite the collision course with the public over this. I think the public will enjoy Christmas. I think they will be sensible and they'll make their own decisions um, and, and, and largely operate within the rules that have been set out. But I do think, always remember, Matt, the public can have it both ways. And I think that in January, it's really good. It looks very clear from this focus group that they may well turn around and say, look, actually, the government has caused this resurgence by doing this. And they, and it may well backfire, actually, if the government tries and argues that that's something to do with rule breakers. Matt Hancock is due in the House of Commons any moment now to announce the review of the tier system in England. So we'll bring you that as and when it comes. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is just in the dispatch box, uh, as he has been for about the last hour or so. He's announced that his mother apparently is having the vaccine uh, this weekend. Uh, again, urging people to uh, get the coronavirus vaccine. But let's take a listen to uh, what happened when you asked the uh, the group of swing voters in Scunthorpe whether or not they would have the vaccine. I hope I will get it, yeah. I I hope that it's going to be the uh, thing that saves us. I'm Tom. Um, I have a friend um, who works at the hospital in the labs testing and doing all the things. So I have quite a reliable source (laughs) there. And uh, like he said to me, every year we get a new flu jab and it's done in six months and it's safe. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to have it. Um, I think it's a fantastic thing and I hope it'll give us uh, some chance of getting this thing defeated. Um, this is probably quite controversial, but I choose not to. I, if I have a choice, I choose no. I don't think we know enough about the vaccine. I think the vaccine is, is has been rushed. So there was a lot of sort of, there weren't out and out sort of anti, anti-vaxxers or anti-getting the vaccine. But some nervousness there, um, James, from some of them. What would what would you be advising the government to do to try and uh, mitigate and allay some of that? Yeah, well, I think as you say, firstly, you know, certainly this sort of tallies with a another uh, poll that we did by KCNC last week, which showed about seventy percent of people in the UK said they definitely or likely would take the vaccine. That was actually the highest of all the countries we surveyed. So the overall picture is healthy, but as you say, there are those residual doubts. A lot of it seems to be over safety um, and fears about being rushed. So I think, you know, really trying to get that message across um, that actually it's not. One of the things that we found in that poll I mentioned um, is that sort of reference to experts and scientific bodies backing it really does help, particularly with these voters who are worried about safety. Um, Actually, mentioning that the World Health Organization supported the vaccine um, had a big increase uh, in, in, in trust in taking it. But also, I think they need to see people like them taking the vaccine. I think that that clip that went viral last week of the chap talking to CNN about how, you know, he phoned up the hospital and went and got it. I think I think, you know, some of us in Britain were perhaps looking at that and thinking this man is almost too British. You know, there could not be a better (laughs) sell for the Americans. But actually, that kind of thing, you know, seeing people who are like them getting it. 
I imagine will will help. And those will be the things to focus on. And it's worth saying that even that lady there who sounded in that clip very resolute, you know, as the conversation went on, the conversation kind of started to flip to, yeah, I would get it if it was safe rather than I wouldn't get it because I'm worried about it being safe. So I think this these hesitations are quite soft. And as we move through the year, I think the government, yes, it, they'll want to up their communication campaign, but they'll also be hoping for a snowball effect as more and more people start to get it. Now, James, we began this conversation with me saying, what is the value of focus groups? Because people inevitably get in touch and say, this is just five, six, seven, eight people. Literally on cue, we've had a text message saying, your Vox Populi is very interesting, but is is it really a basis for divining what the UK population really is thinking? After all, something like 45 million people are eligible to vote and you're sampling five or six people in Scunthorpe. Um, at the risk of getting you to repeat yourself again, Joe, just because it's really interesting. And, you know, I find these focus groups uh, fascinating. I know lots of other people too, because we had lots of messages about that as well. But just explain again the value of this and why Downing Street and public bodies and political parties use focus groups. Absolutely. So the first thing to say is that we haven't just kind of gone out and, you know, found six random people. We haven't just gone and, you know, taken some people off the street. You know, we've recruited them uh, based on the sort of the, the demographics we're really interested in. Here, we were interested in people who voted Labour before 2019 and came to the Conservatives for the first time in one seat. So that's the first thing to say. The other thing to say is that the person texting in is pretty much right. You know, this isn't intended to be a poll and isn't intended to sum up the views of the British population. It gives us a snapshot. It allows us to get under the surface um, of what people uh, who match a very set group here, the new Tory voters in in Scunthorpe, uh, think and feel about the way that politics is working at the moment. It's not decisive. It's not a prediction, but it does tell us where things are. And it's useful particularly in working out, well, where is the what, what are the views of the brand of these two main parties? Because that ultimately, how they feel and think about the two main parties and whether they stand up for them is what will decide whether they vote for them in the future. And we can start to see that here. We saw over the last 45 minutes, Boris Johnson, the Conservatives brand, starting to look a little bit shaky, returning to those previous worries. And with Labour, we saw the Corbyn toxicity being removed but perhaps not quite enough detail for voters to be really clearly pro-Labour just yet. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.